Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Strix Beltron is a narrative designer for analog and digital games. It was after reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower that today's guest first felt permission to start writing the kinds of stories she could see herself inhabiting. At Pacifica, Strix earned a one-of-a-kind master's degree in mythological studies, where she gained a unique perspective on character, and now she's blending that expertise together with a passion for making people feel things via the games she helps to create. So how does narrative design overlap with other forms of traditional storytelling? Let's find out. Welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Hey, Ethan. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Yeah. And you know, the sun's shining, so it's very generous of you to take some time out of your day. For once in Washington, right? Yeah. And we're both, for listeners, we're both in Washington State, Western Washington, I think about 90 minutes apart. But yeah, it's one of our better days recently. So yeah. yeah, later I plan to actually get out on the water. I'm a free diver. And, um, no free diving today, but I'm going to get out on the kayak and at least like stick my face in because nice. I've been cooped up for the last two weeks. Yes. <laughs> to get out. Yeah. Where are you going to go to do your kayaking? Um, just some lake water. Um, I usually, when I go out free diving, I go out to either the Sound or out to Nibay. But because of everything that's going on right now, Nibay is closed. And, mm. um, you know, a lot of the resources that are available uh, safety-wise for free divers are not. So it's just not a good time to be out there. Mm. Maybe we'll come back to the free diving. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so for people who may not know who you are, and maybe that's a few people listening, like, what would you like to say about yourself? Uh, sure. So I am a narrative director at a AAA video game company here in Seattle, uh, Hidden Path Entertainment. I'm on an unannounced project, which means I am, can't say anything about it. <laughs> um, but I have been working in interactive narrative experiences and um, writing in general professionally since like 2007. Mm. Uh, I co-wrote the tabletop RPG Bluebeard's Bride, okay. um, which is a feminine horror RPG. Nice. Uh, it came out in 2017 or 2018. It won a few awards. Uh, so that made me really happy. Yeah. Um, I have worked on State of Decay 2, uh, Raccoon Lagoon, uh, Beyond Blue, which is coming out very, very soon. And then um, Hollow Vista, which was announced uh, late last year and is coming out um, sometime this year. So very okay. busy uh, yeah. in the video game world and in the tabletop RPG world. Wow. Well, good for you. And I assume you're still having fun with that. Yes, games are very fun. Uh, <laughs> and if they stop being fun, then I have a problem. <laughs> mm. So you have a master's degree in mythological studies. I do, in fact. Um, so Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara is the only American institution that offers a master's and a PhD in mythological studies. Mm. Um, I, was, I was in the PhD program and mm -hmm. I pulled the parachute and bailed at my master's, which was actually just the perfect thing for me. Um, <laughs> okay. You want to say more about that? Uh, uh, since we like, I like talking about like, like 
these little pivots in our lives that kind of lead us where we are. It feels like that might be an important one. Yeah. I mean, I figured out that I was a doer and um, I did not want to sit on my hands for another three years writing about uh, other people's philosophies and where I could take them. Mm. I just wanted to to do. Um, and originally I thought Bluebeard's Bride might actually be my thesis. Mm. Um, but then I was like, you know, I actually want to keep that for me. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to get out of here and publish. Um, and it was a great idea. Uh, mm. Academia is not a secure place right now for anybody. Yeah. It's, uh, especially not a secure place uh, for a PhD where there are no departments for it uh, in any other institutions. Right. If so, in the States there's <laughs> one program, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to end up uh, squeezing yourself into an anthropology or to uh, a literature uh, department and never quite fit. And that's, that's not what I wanted. Um, I wanted to tell stories. So, so, but you, something about this program then drew you in if it was one of a kind. Right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so Goodness. So uh, my undergraduate degree is actually in environmental policy. I thought I was going to mm. be an EPA lawyer. <laughs> uh, and I sat down to take the LSAT um, and I had a, a crisis of conscience and realized that is not what I wanted to do. Mm. <laughs> um, and I ended up joining the Peace Corps and living in Ecuador and um, interacting with some of the living myth and um, belief systems there in indigenous mm. culture. And I came back and I was like, well, what do I, what do, I do with all of this? Um, and I was like, well, obviously I got to go to graduate school. That seems reasonable. <laughs> um, but I've loved mythology my entire life. And Pacifica okay. in, in specific really intermarries um, mythological systems, philosophy, and then psychology. And um, they're mm. very heavily based in Jungian depth psychology. Okay. As sort of a, a psychological underpinning for interacting with um, myth worldwide. It's not like, you know, Harvard's Sanskrit department where it's very like comparative mythology, ancient mythology. Um, Pacifica's program is much more concerned with how mythology fits into the world today and mm. how it operates today. Right. Uh, and I'm also interested in that. So, so it was right up my alley. Cool. And if you had like a, you know, an exciting blurb or teaser for what union depth psychology was, who for, for, uh, for you know yeah for, so for writers who are like if i typed in google <laughs> uh so uh carl Jung was uh, a psychologist uh, very popular in the 50s he was the protege of freud um mm. and he really thought deeply about archetypes um mm -hmm. archetypal images archetypal uh touchstones in cultures and personally within our own psyches yeah. and connecting those through lines between a cultural archetype and a personal archetype. Mm. Um, and the reason why I love that as a narrative designer is because it's structural and designers think structurally. That's, I can't help it. <laughs> and so marrying, um, you know, a union structure to a storytelling structure in video games has been tremendously a uh, successful endeavor for me. Okay. So I want to ask more about that, but so it, it, I'm, my reaction to hearing this, right, is, wow, this must allow you to make some really cool characters. It's like the first thing comes up as a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, so how does this apply then to, to video games and, and sure. narrative and video games? <laughs> uh, so I tend to be character driven and character focused in my work. Okay. Um, I, generally believe that plot is like an outgrowth of person. Like mm. you're going to find out what's going to happen because you're going to find out what they're going to do and you're going to understand what they're going to do because you understand them. Mm. Um, so when I am constructing characters, I actually go through a pretty lengthy process um, mm -hmm. that is tied into union psychology of defining like what their core archetype is, um, what their core complex is. And a complex mm. is like their damage like their shadow basically the things they want to don't want to deal with about themselves so they're like yeah um and then i focus on like what's really awesome about them why would people love them mm. uh, and then i think about um something called moral foundation theory have you heard of that no tell me more moral sure. foundation 
yeah theory. moral foundation theory if you go and you look it up there is um, a big study done and a lot of um, literature contributed to the idea that every culture can have like six major uh, moral foundations and those okay. are like you know justice authority kindness um, etc mm. and the issue is not that one culture is bad or one culture is good it's that they interpret these six core uh, morals differently Mm. Um, and so I always pick like one or two core morals from moral foundation theory to say, okay, this character cares about these morals and they care about them in this way. Mm. How do they interpret these morals? Um, and that's often where a lot of conflict comes from between yeah. characters is right yeah. there in that, that moral foundation theory area. Mm. That sounds juicy. Oh yeah. Complexes and, and moral foundation theory are my two, probably two favorite parts. Yeah. Of, Getting the juice. <laughs> well, I have I have this really favorite resource that I'll lean on when I'm actually making an effort to plan in advance, and that's uh, the emotional wounds thesaurus, mm-hmm. which is which is great. It's like 250 pages of like juicy. Here's something bad that happened to somebody, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, how they carry like- it around for better and worse. Yeah, it sounds like a complex generator. <laughs> yeah, it is, basically. It's a complex. But it also generates what's awesome about people, too, which I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and so narrative and video games, right? Like, for people who play video games, I'm not sure that everybody does listening, but, like, is there a strong link between them, or does it vary from kind of, like, types of games, genres of games, or...? Uh, it really depends on the genre of game. Um, I contend that every video game has some kind of narrative, even if it's not in words, even mm-hmm. if it's not like a story that happens. Like some story of some kind is being told, whether it's a vague story, it's a specific story. But I mm-hmm. particularly work in narrative-driven AAA games. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of story. There's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of character development. And all of those things are really uh, important. So I, I take my strengths where they're needed and I work on projects that, that call for those things because not mm. all projects do. Okay. And so obviously there's a big difference, right, between writing a story um, that's not in a game and, <laughs> and writing narrative. And I'm curious, like, what's the 101 there for, for the difference between writing for, say, fiction and writing for a game. Yeah, so um, I've taught this before in other workshops, but the the biggest difference that is hard for other people to master from other disciplines like TV writing or from novel writing Mm. is the interactivity. Um, Interactivity is the the basis for a video game narrative, Mm -hmm. which means your goal is to make room for the player to express themselves, to make choices, and to have agency. Mm-hmm. And a lot of writers from either uh, TV or novelizations just kind of want to tell their story, yeah. and they don't, they don't know how to create a structure for the player to fill with their own story. Right. How do you, how do you learn that? How do you, how do you learn interactivity? Um, well, I can tell you how I learned, which is yeah. not necessarily what I recommend. <laughs> Well, this is your path, your show. So, <laughs> um, so I started out uh, LARPing, uh, mm. live action role playing with other people in a room, being really dorky and pretending to be other characters. Mm. And I grew that practice into being a LARP designer, which meant um, designing LARPs for other people to occupy with their characters. Mm. And I would have to design plots where they would find something interesting to do and meaningful for them. And it was not just one player. It was like 20 or 100 because I was working in three different cities. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were all interconnected. So it was madness. Uh, So uh, people are also really dynamic and irrational. And (laughs) they make choices. um, (laughs) What? Moments. Yes, definitely. That uh, don't maybe make logical sense, but make emotional sense. Yes. So I really had to learn how to think on my feet because LARPs that I was running were lasting six hours, seven hours mm. um, at a time, you know, per pop. And I had to have content ready for every 
every situation or be flexible enough to respond to any situation in person and keep people on their story threads. Damn. Um, and balance them all against each other. So it was really dynamic work that I did for a few years. And afterwards, I was like, okay, I got this. <laughs> Video games yeah. are much easier. <laughs> that sounds, um, in many ways, that sounds perfect, right? Like, so you, so I assume like there is some hard truths that you learned during that process. Like when you plan things out, maybe you're feeling like, Hey, this is going to be epic. You have these great ideas. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. And, and maybe players derail that. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yeah. You basically uh, video game writing is a, a practice in divorcing yourself from ego and occupying <laughs> other people's, other people's minds. Okay. Um, because you almost have to like set traps for them or draw them in or entice them to take mm -hmm. the bait, right? You set up a moment for them and then it's up to them to seize the moment. And your job is to set up that moment just right. Mm. Mm. Say more about that. Oh goodness. Um, so I live to make people cry <laughs> Okay. in a good, healthy way where there's, there's feeling lots of feelings. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I successfully did this with Bluebeard's Bride. Um, lots of people cry when they play it, wow. um, which I, again, I'm very proud of. But yeah. the idea is, like, I want, like, my goal is to make people feel things mm. with, with my game writing. I mm. want them to, to either process something or learn something or feel something that's going to make them better or more expansive as a person by mm. the time they're done with my content. Mm. Um, and so that means that I have to come from a place of real authenticity. Like, even if it's like some goofy video game with like VR raccoons, like I still have to mean what I say. Like I can't, I can't just dial it in, yeah. uh, because, um, the content matters in my experience is that humans are very, very narratively driven. Like yeah. we like to think we're logical creatures. We're actually narratively driven creatures. Um, mm. And that's how we understand our world is through narrative. So when I'm thinking about like sitting down to write a game and what I want people to feel, that's actually kind of where I begin is um, like, what's going to matter to these players when they're engaging with these characters or what are they going to feel like they are losing or gaining in an um, emotional way? Um, mm. So for instance, I'm working on this mobile game right now, Hollow Vista. And again, it's not released yet, so I can't say a whole lot. Um, but like my goal in Hollow Vista is to make the players feel something that they weren't expecting in a moment of like real rawness. And again, my hope is they have mm. big feelings. Um, and then it's just a matter of execution. And whether I can articulate, Ethan, properly how to do that execution, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I just know that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah, so so there's an intentionality and purpose like behind your work. And so like, how do you arrive at a place where that's your goal? You know, maybe, maybe that's hmm. more of an intuitive thing, but the, the goal of making people feel things as a, um, as a professional goal. Yeah. I, huh. That's a very deep question. You're poking at me. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think personally, like I, when I was younger, had challenges uh, engaging with media authentically as a consumer in feeling things myself. I did not want to do it. I didn't trust it. I was like, stay away from me. Emotions, bad. Yeah. Um, and then I grew and, excuse the cat. Uh, <laughs> oh, hi cat. <laughs> having emotions. Yes, having emotions. Yeah. And I realized emotions were great uh, and they're super important to experience. Mm. And so I feel like when I have something to say, I know what it is. And then I just go about finding ways, uh, trying to say it and come on, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just being really super focused on that until it's done. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and I guess I have this curiosity in the sense of 
you went into something that's highly collaborative, right? Mm-hmm. Is that just in this environment? Is it just because you love, like, if I imagine there were were choices between, you know, writing books or writing screenplays or doing narrative design, was it that you just love video games and role playing games that much? Um, well, I used to work in Hollywood. I did. Mm. I did some script doctoring. Um, ah. I've I've had a play produced a very long time ago, and you know I do write long form fiction. Um, okay. Uh, just I haven't published any yet. Um, mm, you should, we and, should talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Good. Uh, good. But uh, you know, for me, why I chose video games was actually very specific and intentional. Yeah. Um, besides just making people feel things. I feel like telling stories is really important for people to hold on to in hard times. Mm. Um, and especially like right now, mm-hmm. um, or in the future with a really uncertain, you know, environmental guarantee of life. Um, yeah. I feel like we're going to need to lean on stories for guidance and for sustenance. Mm. And I believe I can tell those stories and maybe that is ego. I don't know, Ethan, but um, I think that I, I am going to be able to say things that are going to help people Um, kind Mm. of like, you know, Octavia Butler's parable of the sower really helped me. Mm. Um, And so video games are the biggest consumer market. They're, They're bigger than movies. They're bigger than novels. They're everywhere. If I want to reach the most people, video games is where I need to be. Um, in addition to that, video games provide a salary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every month I get a check and it's fabulous. Um, and it gives me the stability I need to pursue side projects, to mm. continue to educate myself and, and to work on other parts of my creativity while being securely employed, not having to worry about, you know, um, shopping this next book or selling this next TV script. It's just like there. Yeah. And it's definitely work, but it's secure work, um, which I prefer. <laughs> mm. Mm. So we enter into this territory then where this is, you know, capital P profession, right? What you're doing, and it is work, as you note, right? And so how do you find the balance between uh, growing and finding joy in the work and dealing with the other aspects of the fact that it is a job? Well, honestly, I just haven't hit that wall yet. Mm. Um, I, I really, I genuinely get up every day and I'm like, holy shit, someone's paying me to do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they think that this is, this is valuable. I mean, I know I went to graduate school and like everything, but like, yeah. oh my gosh, I get to get up every day and make things up and just make up people and make up places and make up things that they're doing and what happens to them. And everyone works with it. Uh, Mm. You know, as you mentioned, we're highly interdisciplinary and I work with art teams. I work with design teams. I work with sound teams and it's all kind of like this big orchestration, like a big orchestra. Mm -hmm. And part of, part of the appeal to me for narrative design, not just writing, because I want to be clear, like I'm not a game writer. I'm a narrative designer. Mm. Um, which means I don't just write lines, like design experiences. Right. Um, part of that is the virtuosity that happens between disciplines, the, the dynamism and the dynamics that are always moving and changing, I find highly engaging, um, and I don't get bored. Mm. That's, that's like a key thing. I don't get bored. That's special. Uh, that's, it's amazing that you're in that place. I remember I, having I remember having a performance review <laughs> early in my career, you know, and they ask like those these career planning things. It's like I remember writing down and thinking it might get me fired, but I wanted to put like on my like my goal for three to five year plan is don't get bored. I think that's that's really important because uh, yeah. with boredom comes the loss of spark, right? Mm. Creatively, so I I am very thankful for the position that I have. Yeah. So to do this, right, you mentioned it's interdisciplinary. You're working with a lot of people um, to make it happen. And what have you learned in this process of collaborating at that deep level? 
maybe about yourself and about the process? Yeah. Um, so sometimes people are going to have better narrative ideas than I have about the thing that I created, mm. <laughs> which is hard sometimes when you're like, I am the mastermind and I have made this thing. And they're like, well, what if you just did this? And you're like, oh, wait, that's really good. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, you're doing those on a micro level every day. But you're also, discernment is really key. Like, you have to know what is good and what is bad, at least as, at a narrative director level, to be like, yes, your idea design person is really good, or your idea sound person has, like, a good crawl to it, but I think we should go this direction, you know? Kind of mm-hmm. kind of doing the woosah redirecting. Um, yeah. But really empowering the people around you to think creatively with you all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not like, you know... We're brainstorming every piece every time that we do anything, but it's learning to work with fellow creatives who are also professionals who know what they're doing. And um, kind of, it's like weaving a big tapestry where everyone has a number of strings and you're really good at weaving your strings and they're really good at weaving their strings. But Mm -hmm. if you can get that synergy where you're weaving your strings together just right, then you make something really special. So um, I love the interdisciplinary aspect of my work. It takes a lot of um, EQ, though. Like you need to have a lot of social and emotional intelligence to to do it well, in my opinion. Right. I imagine you kind of have to take a close look at your own role and how you think about your role to fit into that. Right. It makes yeah that, make that synergy work. <laughs> I think so, and I think this is why it's actually really hard to make video games. Like it. Like any game that actually gets published and that you can buy on the shelf is a miracle. Like, <laughs> like I don't think people understand how many yeah. games get canceled, how many projects don't work, or how many games are not good because this, this work, this interdisciplinary work is really hard and mm-hmm. it is easy to do wrong. And it's easy for toxic personalities to take over or for the vision to splinter or for any number of, of things to happen. Like creating a really good video game is incredibly challenging. Yeah. Incredibly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I used to work in software once upon a time. Um, and that resonates for me. I remember having that awareness like, like about, a few years into my career when I was still in my twenties and like, wait a minute, like if we're having all these problems and you know, software is a series of solving problems. Right. Mm-hmm. And like when I, when I realized that like 80% or more of problems could be solved, like by talking to people and not by adding software processes and doing more work, that was Amazing, quite a, re- right? quite a revelation. <laughs> Yeah, we have we have all the problems of software development plus art. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and socially, right? You're talking about like this union psychology, and maybe we're living that as well when we're working in groups. Oh, I, I think so for sure. <laughs> yeah. So when's when's the game coming about out about working in in game design? <laughs> oh gosh, you know there was a game. It's a Twine game. Are you familiar with Twine? No. Okay, so Twine is like yeah. uh, Twine is a really accessible game platform that's basically like kind of like Choose Your Own Adventure, but it's digital. Okay. Um, and there was actually, I think, a game writer or a narrative designer who made a Twine game some years ago mm-hmm. about what it was like to be a game writer on a video game team. Mm. And I remember playing it and being like, "Oh my god, this is the scariest shit I have ever seen. I would never want to do that as a job." and you know here we are so (laughs) right well there you go so you've also had this experience of working on a tabletop role-playing game Mm -hmm. which i imagine there's maybe some overlap with doing video games but maybe some other disciplines involved uh there is overlap and then there are places where it's very different um Mm. They, they both come, at least on the narrative side, on the narrative design side, they come down to the same principles. They're just enacted differently. Mm. Um, with Bluebeard's Bride in particular, because I've, I've worked actually on a lot of tabletop RPGs as accredited writer, but this is the first one I did like that was mine. Mm. Um, 
we decided to really take our time on it. It was me and two other women, um, Sarah Richardson and Marissa Kelly, mm. on getting it just right. Um, so Bluebeard's Bride as a product and as a game is very, very concise. Mm. Uh, it does exactly what we intend it to do. Um, and it delivers exactly the experience that we intend. Now, mm. Bluebeard's Bride is a very particular kind of RPG product. It's not like Dungeons and Dragons, where it's designed for you to have any kind of adventure that you want. It is designed for you to have an ex a very specific kind of experience and adventure. Okay. Um, and that is a horror adventure uh, based on the fairy tale of Bluebeard, which is very Jungian, of course, as, as a fairy tale structure. Um, and so we, we knew sort of subconsciously and we knew sort of intuitively, I think where we were going the entire time. Mm -hmm. And that made it actually a lot easier because we knew when we were off track. Uh, and so we would stop, we'd reassess and we go, okay, how do we, how do we cut back to the bone of this? It's kind of like how some of the sculptors describe sculpting marble, which mm -hmm. is the images underneath and they're just slowly peeling off the layers to reveal it. That's what that process felt like for me. Mm. I guess from, you know, I, I casually play some tabletop role-playing games, have a group, and I've learned a lot in the last three years, kind of catching up on that world. And so I know there's like, there's different aspects of it, right? There's, there's the background material almost that's more like writing and there can be a lot of different elements in there. So, what are the elements that you that you put in there into this game? Sure. So um, let me just describe Bluebeard's Bride a little bit, and maybe that yeah. will help. Yeah. Um, so Bluebeard's Bride is a one-shot experience, meaning it's meant to be played once. Okay. With replayability, meaning you can come back and play the game again for different outcomes or different feelings, but like this, like the experience is the experience, and it runs from like four to six hours for mm -hmm. this session. Um, it's a game for up to five players, so anywhere from two to five, plus mm -hmm. um, basically a DM or a GM who is running the game. Okay. Um, in the game, you are playing the bride from, from the Bluebird story, which is um, you know this young woman that he marries, and he sort of tricks into disobeying him so that he can murder her, <laughs> like he's done all of his previous wives. Um, and the trick is every player is playing the same bride. They're playing an aspect of her personality. And this mm. is where it gets really Jungian mm. uh, because they're basically archetypes of the single woman. So there's, you know, the femme fatale, there's the mother, the virgin, the witch, and then the animus, which is like the masculine side of this character. Mm. And they're all archetypally structured, as you can imagine. And um, they have different moves they can do. So they are basically going through Bluebeard's house like uh, you do in the fairy tale, mirroring this bride's sort of discovery of if Bluebeard is a good guy or not, which hmm. he's not. <laughs> he's really not. Um, and uh, the players are investigating the house and finding objects or meaningful pieces of things that they've been interpret to understand whether or not their husband is a good guy or a bad guy. Hmm. Um, pro tip, he's a bad guy and he's going to get you <laughs> in the end. Um, and the game is really about when you lack power, what do you do with agency? Like hmm. without power, right? You have all the agency you want, but you can't hurt anything without getting hurt yourself. Like violence will not succeed in this environment. Hmm. So what happens? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of a deep question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds like it's not just a game, but it's a nice metaphor for <laughs> for the times in our lives. Um yeah, okay. So I, I'm getting that and so that draws heavily on your your school background and your love of telling these stories. So that's interesting. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you had two collaborators on that. Mm -hmm. And how did you kind of like divide the work or, or share the work? Um, well, we divided it 
three ways. Uh, we were pretty equitable about the work. Um, I did a lot of the vision holding, obviously, because of uh, my background and kind of the way that we were structuring it. Um, okay. And like Kel Marissa, for instance, was really good about pushing the rule set to be really interesting. Hmm. Um, and then um, Sarah also really, really loved fairy tales. And she was really good at making it more horrifying because I want to be clear, like it's a horrifying game. It's not mm -hmm. a game you play lightly. Like, oh, we're just going to play Bluebeard's Bride for fun today. Like it's an experience. Right. Um, and a lot of the things where you just read it and you go, oh, God, oh, man, oh, we're really going to do this? Ah. Um, <laughs> Sarah's really good at, like, zeroing in on that. So we all had our strengths. Um, okay. And the funny part is um, this game came about because we were all strangers. Mm. And we sat down for a two-hour game jam at this convention called Gen Con. Okay. And we just, Sarah and I happened to be paired together. We didn't know each other. And um, Marissa was our facilitator. And by the end of that two hours, we were like, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to make this game. And then we did. Hmm. So that's kind of crazy. <laughs> that is, that's really random. But I guess it's, maybe this is a good, good PSA for getting out there when you can and networking with people, I guess. Or at least doing game jams. I, lo I love game jams. They're yeah. great. So I get the sense none of your career would have really happened if you just stayed at home and, and wrote and... Oh, um, not in games. I think yeah. you can get away with that in long form fiction. Um, yeah. The games is all about experimenting and doing um, and game jams and just making things, even mm. if they're bad things, is is the gateway. Okay, so so you have this term you've mentioned a couple times, like it has specific capital letter meaning game jams. So yes. what, is a, what is a game jam? Uh, so I would encourage anybody who is a writer who's thinking about games to try a game jam. Um, okay. Game jams are events. They're either local or they're online, like the mm -hmm. Global Game Jam, which you can do remotely from anywhere, um, where you get together for a certain amount of time. Maybe it's 24 hours, maybe it's two weeks, but it's definitely mm -hmm. capped and it's definitely short. And you say, we're going to make a game. Mm. <laughs> and that's it. And you may know how to write, or you may know how to code, or you may know how to make sprites, or, yeah. you know, like, you know, how to make 3D models. And everyone is kind of thrown into this big pile, and people form groups, and they say, okay, we're going to make this game in two weeks, we're going to make it in 24 hours, or we're going to make it in three days. And then yeah. you just do it, <laughs> and then you're done. And the goal is to have a game that's playable and finished mm. by the end of the jam. So that's really great, because it's time capped. Yeah. So procrastinating writers will just not have that choice. <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's really power. It's really powerful to have a deadline, right? <laughs> um, you're in the tools, you're learning the tools. Many yeah. game jams are supported by mentors. So you don't know how you have to know how to do anything other than write. If you want to like write for a game at a game jam, you just show up and you figure it out. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, I barely, barely know how to code. Like I, I'm not a coder. Uh, but that's not my job in games and you do not know, have to know how to code or mm. how to work in these engines to do a game jam as a writer. So that's, I'm preaching now. Oh. I hope you're hearing this in my voice. Go, okay. go do a game jam folks. Well, I'm, I'm sounding super excited. I feel super excited about it. I, I hadn't heard the term before, but I have a couple lived experiences that are essentially the same concept. And one in software was the hackathon. Mm -hmm. Very much like a hackathon. Yeah, and but in Nashville and other music centers, there's the same concept, and it's what professional songwriters do all the time. You have writing dates. You just oh, is get, that what they're called? Yeah, you just get together and you co-write for like two or three hours, and it's time capped, right? And you <laughs> you write a song with strangers, you know, and you you make friends along the way, and it's a great way to develop your craft and learn how to collaborate with people. So mm -hmm. one of the things I honed in on there that you said when you're talking about Bluebeard's Bride and working with others, you mentioned you were the vision holder mm -hmm. and, and as a role, and whether it was informally designated or you know, that everybody understood or you explicitly talked about it, um, can a project work without a vision holder? 
Uh, it can. I don't know if it will be very good. Mm. <laughs> so do you have experiences where it's been maybe ambiguous or unclear who that role is? Yeah, I mean, um, I have worked for other vision holders where I'm like, yes, I love your vision. I believe in your vision. Let's work towards your vision. Mm. Or we've done mutual shared visions where we know exactly what it is and several people can hold it or one person can hold it. The problem is when no one is holding vision and everyone's just like making a mechanic. Um, In games, that's particularly dangerous because you make a cool mechanic and you're like, great, I've got this mechanic. Um, What does it mean? (laughs) You know? Uh, And that's often where like game jam games, if they're going to fall apart, is usually around that, um, that vision. Um, if it's a narrative driven game, if it's like a shooter, who cares? Um, but if you're trying to make a narrative game, if someone doesn't know how, or is not designated to hold vision, um, that's, that's a really hard path to tread. And again, this still happens in like AAA studios. Yes. This is why I highlight it, right? It happens at every level (laughs) issues around this. Um, so, so you know, when you play a video game that, uh, they have not succeeded in. Uh, encapsulating the vision. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or, or in, in any other product, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I imagine there's situations if you, you sounds like you've done a lot of collaborating. So there would be, maybe tell me if this has come up where maybe there's more than one person who wants to hold the vision and they're not in sync with each other mm-hmm. or they're pulling against each other. Yep. <laughs> Um, th- those can be really hard situations. Yeah. Um, have you I, ever been one of the two people in that situation? No, no, okay. I have not. So I can't I think, ask you how to resolve it. Well, I think some, so I think actually the error is much farther up the tree when that happens. Okay. I think, I think the error comes earlier in that process where something else has gone wrong to get you to that point. Um, mm. I choose my projects pretty carefully. I have the ability to do that, which is, you know, very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think working with people, again, we've talked about this, is very important, and it has to be the right people. So on long-term projects, like Marissa and um, Sarah were the right people. We got very, very lucky in that lottery of that particular game jam. Mm-hmm. But there have been other folks who have asked me to join projects and, you know, I've investigated it and I've kind of poked around and I went, mm, no, not for me, not this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that decision-making usually has to go around what's happening with the vision. Do I believe in it? Is it mm-hmm. being handled well? Um, you know, is someone doing it right? Because uh, yeah. I don't have to be the vision holder on every project. That's where I am right now um, in my full-time job. But like, I'm more than happy to just write for a thing where it's someone else's vision. I did that for many years coming up to the position that I have. Yeah. Um, so I just tend to avoid those situations, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So there, there's also the situation, like this would come up for me and like co-writes a lot, especially when you haven't developed the personal trust yet. So say you're personal, you're just strangers and maybe... Like, it's uncomfortable to say, hey, one of us, we've got this idea. Like, we know where it's going. And so we just keep deferring to each other. And it doesn't go anywhere until we decide, like, who's going to own it. Or maybe we never do decide who's going to own the vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it sounds like you've got, a like, an intuitive grasp on the social dynamics when you're jumping in, like, with these game jams. Yeah. And I also will admit like I am a type A and I will step into a void uh, if there is one. (laughs) Like I won't, I won't be in that like, no, you go, no, you go kind of situation. I would break that pretty immediately and be like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to take control here. (laughs) Would that have always been true or did you kind of have to arrive at that through, through a process? No, I think I was born this way. Like I was doing this with like high school projects. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. You know, there's different things that come up with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But (laughs) so you're right. You mentioned you're doing longer form writing as well. Mm -hmm. 
so at this stage in your kind of career and growth, right? Like, what is that doing for you? Like in terms of, um, I guess, create creatively or, you know, what are you exploring with that process? Um, well, I am definitely writing towards a goal. You know, I've, um, because I published Blueberry's Bride and because I have kind of so many credits laying around elsewhere, there are um, professionals in the space who are interested in kind of like what I could come up with and mm. um, representing it or selling it. And so I was like, oh, wait, I guess I should have a manuscript uh, for that to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, I've been creative writing for a long time. I, I started with long form fiction. And at one point in my tiny little 12 year old heart, I wanted to be like a full time novelist. And I don't think that ever went away. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm working on a project right now in Scrivener, which I love. Scrivener is the best. It, it um, is nice, yeah. <laughs> where I am, you know, exploring themes of um, voice and ethnicity. I'm a Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. And when I first started writing, uh, you know, I read a lot of Stephen King and I, I read a lot of, oh God, Terry Goodkind. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of very successful, you know, top 10 bestsellers and they were all men. Yeah. So... Yeah. So I would write in a man's voice. I would write about male characters and Mm. I would write from their perspective, from their gaze, right? I was writing from a masculine gaze. Yeah. Uh, And I was like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I don't have to do this. But it took an embarrassingly long time for me to figure that out. I was like 19 or 20 when I was like, oh, I don't. I could write from my voice. What? (laughs) What? Um, and that's so, a great epiphany. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a great epiphany. And I have, again, Octavia Butler to thank for that. Um, mm. And so I had begun a piece when I was in university that was, you know, for a university student, pretty strong, but like had problems. And I kind of resurfaced the manuscript a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, actually, I can say something about this. I can say something about this transformation from masculine voice to my voice and what it really is, which is probably mm-hmm. somewhere in the feminine vicinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what, what that transformation means and what that identity means, um, mix it with a lot of mythology and like magic. And, um, cause I write specifically sci-fi and fantasy for, and horror, like that, that corner of the genre space for great. Do. Um, great. And I was like, okay, well, what if we make it so that someone has prophetic visions and there's two people, but they're actually one person and they osmosis into a single entity? I don't know. Uh, so uh, I'm working out my stuff. That's what I'm doing. I'm That's cool. That's really cool. So you've brought up um, Octavia Butler and the parable of the sower a couple times. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure to follow up and and you said this has done a lot for you so i wanted to kind of get inside that a little bit if you're willing to talk about that um sure so i you know have been a voracious reader since i was a kid i i read like all of dune and and mccaffrey and literally anything that was on the shelf in Mm -hmm. my school library um but they were uh, they were all white folks Mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know and yeah. hey they're the classics of, right that's yeah. what it means to be the but classic like, none of their experiences they were talking about were my experiences yeah um and so i loved these books and i was like i want to be that am i that i'm that um mm. right like i was trying to convince myself that i was what i saw in these books but it, it, it was not driving um and then because I was thinking about being a writer too, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to model this behavior into my writing and that's yeah. how you be a successful writer. I was just doing the math. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, okay, here are the things you're allowed to talk about and here's the way you're allowed to talk about them. Mm. And here are the subjects that are interesting and here's how we talk about women and here's how we talk mm. about, you know, all kinds of things. Mm. Um, and I read Parable of the Sower and it was just like an egg breaking um, so for those that are not familiar, Parable of the Sower is kind of this 
post-apocalyptic story where the main character has like a superpower. Okay. Superpower is empathy. Um, and empathy to such a degree where if they see someone else cut, their skin opens up and they bleed. Oh. Um, so Intense. not necessarily like Intense experience. Yes. a good superpower. Yeah. Um, and this main character, she was um, black. Um, and so she is migrating from Southern California where I used to live actually, um, north up the coast to where, you know, there's no more drought at least. Um, mm-hmm. and things can grow. And I was like, Oh no, that's, we're in a five year drought. What's going on? Um, and in particular, the way that Octavia was not afraid to voice trauma in mm-hmm. her prose, mm-hmm. I was like, wait, I'm, I'm allowed to do that. Like, I can just say it. I <laughs> hang on. <laughs> um, and it was really moving in transforming for me because here is this woman of color talking about this experience for this woman of color in this novel. Um, and it was really authentic and true to life mm. for me, like my perspective. And she, it was clear to me that she understood something that I understood. Um, the other people weren't talking about, and that yeah. is this, you know, poverty-informed, um, trauma-informed experience that colors everything. It does. Yeah. Um, and not being afraid to use that voice. She yeah. was the one who showed me that I had permission. Mm. Um, and without that, I don't think Bluebird's Bride would exist. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. And how old were you when you read that? Parable of the Sower? I was in my 20s, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love those moments reading. When you're like, holy shit, this person gets it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's part of what I read for. I don't have that moment a lot, but I love it when I do. I mean, did you have a book like that that, that really cracked the egg for you? <sighs> Probably too many to, to, to mention. I'm trying to think if there was like one in particular. I did read Octavia Butler. Um, as a teenager, uh, not the parable of the sower, but a couple of her other series. And there was this very, sometimes like my mom had a bunch of science fiction and fantasy, like hundreds of books. And so that's what I read, whatever my mom had for quite a while. Um, there's some literary science fiction, like Mary Dariah Russell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you ever read her stuff. Well, like, you know, when you start getting into that territory, there's some <laughs> real character and darkness and, and trauma that comes into to it and realness where we're not always the good guys, right? Yeah, literary sci-fi gets pretty weird, <laughs> right? Yeah, we're just, you know, just dark commentary. <laughs> I, like, I like fun and real, personally, as far as what I write, but I tend to read darker stuff, which is just how it is, I guess. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm just looking for those voices where I don't want just the, man, is this the right term? Whitewashed, like, story. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's whitewashed. I think there is a majority voice that we're yeah. all very familiar with. Yeah. And I think that there is a chorus of minority voices, and they're all different. Yeah. 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 I love that in 2020 that more than ever, what's selling right now is different voices. Yes. It's very exciting for me uh, as, as a minority writer. (laughs) Yeah. And like, and that's how you create value these days. People actually get the choice to, to pick what is emotionally like resonating and relevant. Right. And yeah, it's exciting time to be a writer. And so it sounds like you get to bring some of this into the video game world and, Like, is that something you think about overtly when you're working in AAA titles? Oh, yes. I mean, it's probably deployed covertly, but it's Mm. definitely overtly thought about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Is it something that comes up like in team meetings or when you're having these production meetings? Like, hey, we need to think about representation and different. Oh, yes. I am definitely the champion of representation uh, across many, many organizations, for sure. Awesome. And so where are you still growing? 
Oh, goodness. That's a great question. Um, hmm. So I think everyone is still growing with dialogue. Um, but for video game dialogue in particular, it is its own thing. Uh, video game dialogue is a very particular set of skills. And they don't translate anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a while, but I feel like I'm still really perfecting uh, dialogue. Hmm. Uh, it is it is hard to do because you have to say as much as you can yeah. with as few words as possible. And every line has to be doing double or triple duty in hmm. terms of like the meaning that it's carrying or the exposition that it's um, telling you or the personality that it's revealing. It is a uh, really draining focused work, actually. Uh, mm. You have to be really, really concentrating on it to do it well. So, uh, so. <laughs> how do you know you're hitting the mark? How do you know you're hitting the mark with dialogue? Um, I mean, you read it out loud lots. Yeah. Um, sometimes you do early table reads where you just have people who aren't you come in and read the different voices. Okay. Um, you really lean on your audio people, actually, um, whose bread and butter is what is this going to sound like in mm -hmm. real life when it gets articulated. Mm -hmm. um, and you very quickly learn about, like, you can't put too many S's in that sentence, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, making sure that it just sounds organic and it flows right while still delivering really specific information like yeah. you need to hit this x button over there or you need to unlock this puzzle by doing this thing right mm -hmm. it's not just that you're trying to express personality or you know uh, reveal motivation you've got to do that while telling the player uh, how to play the game uh, so. do you do you have to worry about things like this is going to be translated into other languages oh yes um localization yeah. Um, so localization is a huge challenge, and it is especially challenging right now trying to write non-binary characters. Mm. Um, in English, we're kind of equipped for this. Like, it's a little awkward, but we can do it. But there mm -hmm. are some languages where if you write a non-binary character in English, and then you try to um, take that and localize it in a gendered language like Spanish, then mm -hmm. it can be very challenging, and people uh, don't know what know what to do and like you want to have that representation and you want to have those people there and you want to acknowledge their pronouns properly uh, um and sometimes localization just like hits a brick wall yeah. uh and so you have to navigate kind of you know different kinds of goals at the at the same time yeah it looks really challenging for everybody sounds like you'd have to almost like make it a world building problem and almost assume that you were in a language setting where where you <laughs> only had genders, binary genders. Um, I'm not sure that's the right path. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because we still have to consider markets. Like, there's so many layers to this localization issue. Um, like, we, we consider primary markets and secondary markets and tertiary markets. And, like, if we know that, like, our 90% of our market is in the U.S., so 90% yeah. of our players are in English, You're then... You're not going like, to worry. <laughs> okay, like the French is real bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if like we're making a game and we know that like China is going to be one of our biggest consumers, that changes mm -hmm. a lot. <laughs> yeah. We've come up on an hour and I should ask you for people who want to learn more about you. I know maybe you give workshops from time to time and that kind of thing. How can they find you? Sure. So I'm pretty easy to find online. I'm really active on Twitter. Okay. On Twitter, I am the underscore Strix, S-T-R-I-X. The Strix. Yeah, and I have my own website, but, you know, I live on Twitter, so that's probably where you want to be if you want <laughs> Twitter's a challenging time right now, I'm not going to lie. I have blocked and muted very many words uh, associated with the current circumstances. Oh, uh, you're able to filter by keywords. That's yes. And that, that makes it much more usable right now. Yeah, because there's a lot of authors and other creatives who are just retweeting all sorts of stuff. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. If I don't want to see it right now, I, I will make sure it's muted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great. Well, hey, Strix, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Ethan. I, I love talking about this stuff. I hope anyone who is a long-form fiction writer who's thinking about video games gives it a try. Uh, try is a game jam. 
Yeah, that sounds like sounds like the way to go. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.